Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 24, verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth their firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Burkett notes, The conclusion of the former chapter acquainted us with the birth of John the Baptist. The beginning of this chapter relates the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the remarkable circumstances which did attend it. And here we have observable, 1. The place where he was born, not at Nazareth, but at Bethlehem, according to the prediction of the prophet Micah, chapter 5, 2. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, art not the least among the princes of Judea, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. We may suppose that the Blessed Virgin little thought of changing her place, but to have been delivered of her holy burden at Nazareth, where it was conceived. Her house at Nazareth was honored by the presence of the angel, yea, by the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost. That house there, we may suppose, was most satisfactory to the Virgin's desire. But he that made the choice of the womb, where his son should be conceived, it was fit that he should also choose the place where his son should be born. And this place, many hundreds of years before the nativity, was foretold should be Bethlehem. Observe, too, how remarkable the providence of God was in bringing the virgin up from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that Christ, as it was prophesied of him, might be born there. Augustus, the Roman emperor, to whom the nation of the Jews was now become tributary, puts forth a decree that all the Roman Empire should have their names and families enrolled in order to their being taxed. This edict required that every family should repair to that city to which they did belong, to be enrolled and taxed there. Accordingly, Joseph and Mary, being of the house and lineage of David, have recourse to Bethlehem, the city of David where, according to the prophecy, the Messiah was to be born. Here note how the wisdom of God overrules the actions of men for higher or nobler ends than what they aimed at. The emperor's aim by this edict was to fill his coffers. God's end was to fulfill his prophecies. Observe 3. How readily Joseph and Mary yielded obedience to the edict and decree of this heathen emperor. It was no less than four days' journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. How just an excuse might the virgin have pleaded for her absence. What woman ever undertook so hazardous a journey that was so near her delivery? And Joseph, no doubt, was sufficiently unwilling to draw her forth into so manifest a hazard. But the emperor's command was preemptory, and their obedience was exemplary. We must not plead difficulty for withdrawing our obedience to supreme commands. How did our Savior, even in the womb of his mother, yield homage to the civil rulers and governors? The first lesson which Christ's example taught the world was loyalty and obedience to the supreme magistrate. Observe 4. After many weary steps, the Holy Virgin comes to Bethlehem, 
where every house is taken up by reason of the great confluence of people that came to be taxed. And there's no room for Christ but in a stable. The stable is our Lord's palace. The manger is his cradle. Oh, how can we be abased low enough for him that thus neglected himself for us? What an early indication was this, that our Lord's kingdom was not of this world. Yet some observe a mystery in all of this. An inn is dominus publica juris, not a private house, but open and free for all passengers. And the stable is the commonest place in the inn. To mind us that he who was born there would become a common savior to high and low, noble and base, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. Called, therefore, so often the son of man, the design of his birth being the benefit of mankind. Verses 8 through 12. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Burkett notes, Here we have the promulgation of the first publishing of our Lord's birth to the world. The angel said unto the shepherds, I bring you glad tidings. A Savior is born. Where observe one, the messengers employed by God to publish this joyful news of a Savior's birth. The holy angels, heavenly messengers employed about a heavenly work. It is worth our notice how serviceable the angels were to Christ upon all occasions when he was here upon earth. An angel declares his conception. A host of angels publish his birth. In his temptation, an angel strengthens him. In his agony, an angel comforts him. At his resurrection, an angel rolls away the stone from the door of the sepulcher. At his ascension, the angels attend him up to heaven. And at his second coming to judge the world, he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And great reason there is that the angels should be thus officious in their attendance upon Christ, who is a head of confirmation to them, as he was a head of redemption to fallen man. Observe too. The persons to whom this joyful message of a Savior's birth is first brought, and they are the shepherds. The angel said unto the shepherds, Fear not. 1. Because Christ, the great shepherd of his church, was now come into the world. 2. Because he was of old promised unto the shepherds, the old patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom by their occupation were shepherds. Observe 3. The time when these shepherds had the honor of this revelation it was not when they were asleep on their beds of idleness and sloth, but when they were lying abroad and watching their flocks. The blessings of heaven usually meet us in the way of an honest and industrious diligence, whereas the idle are fit for nothing but temptation to work upon. If these shepherds had been snoring in their beds, they had no more seen an angel, nor yet heard the news of a Savior than their neighbors. Observe for the nature and quality of the message which the angel brought. It was a message of joy, a message of great joy, a message of great joy unto all people. For here was born a son, that son a prince, that prince a savior, that savior not a particular savior of the Jews only, but a universal savior, whose salvation is to the ends of the earth. 
Well might the angel call it a message or glad tidings of great joy unto all people. Observe 5. The ground and occasion of this joy, the foundation of all this good news which was proclaimed in the ears of a lost world, and that was the birth of a Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Hence learn, 1 that the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and his manifestation in our flesh and nature was and is matter of exceeding joy and rejoicing unto all people. Two, that the great end and design of our Lord's incarnation and coming into the world was to be the Savior of lost sinners. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Burkett notes, Although the birth of our blessed Savior was published by one angel, yet it is celebrated by a host of angels. A whole choir of angels chant forth the praises of Almighty God upon this great and joyful occasion. Observe 1. The singers. 2. The song itself. The singers of this heavenly anthem are the holy angels, called a host, partly for their number and partly for their order. Where learn one, the goodness and sweet disposition of these blessed spirits, in whose bosom that cankered passion of envy has no place. If it had, there was never such an occasion to stir it up as now. But heaven admits no such passion. Envy is a native of hell. Tis the smoke of the bottomless pit. The character and temper of the apostate spirits. These grieve at the happiness of man as much as the angels rejoice. O ye blessed angels, what did these tidings concern you, that ruin mankind should be taken again into favor, whereas those of your own host, which fell likewise, remained still in that gulf of perdition into which their sin had plunged them, without either hope of mercy or possibility of recovery? The less we repine at the good, and the more we rejoice in the happiness of others, the more like we are to the holy angels. Yea, the more we resemble God himself. Learn, too, did the angels thus joy and rejoice for us? Then what joy ought we express for ourselves? Had we the tongue of angels, we could not sufficiently chant forth the praises of our Redeemer. Eternity itself would be too short to spend in the rapturous contemplation of redeeming mercy. Observe 3. The anthem, or song itself, which begins with a doxology. Glory be to God in the highest. That is, let God in the highest heavens be glorified by the angels that dwell on high. The angelical choir excite themselves and all the host of angels to give glory to God for these wonderful tidings, as if they'd said, let the power, the wisdom, the goodness, and mercy of God be acknowledged and revered by all the host of heavens forever and ever. Next, the doxology follows a congratulations. Glory be to God in the highest, for there is peace on earth and goodwill towards men. The birth of Christ has brought a peace of reconciliation betwixt God and man upon earth, and also a peace of amity and accord betwixt man and man, and is therefore to be celebrated with acclamations of joy. Verses 15 through 20. And it came to pass... As the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even into Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, 
and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Burkett notes, Several particulars are here observable, as one, that the shepherds no sooner heard the news of his Savior, but they ran to Bethlehem to seek him. And though it was at midnight, yet they did not delay to go. Those that left their beds to attend their flocks now leave their flocks to inquire after their Savior. Learn hence that a gracious soul no sooner hears where Christ is, but instantly makes out after him, and judges no earthly comfort too dear to be left and forsaken for him. These shepherds show that they prefer their Savior before their sheep. Observe, too, these shepherds, having found Christ themselves, do make him known to others. Verse 17. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Learn that such as have found Christ to their comfort and tasted the Lord that is gracious to themselves cannot but recommend him to the love and admiration of others. Observe 3. What effect this relation had upon the generality of people that heard it. It wrought in them amazement and astonishment, but not faith. The people wondered, but not believed. Tis not the hearing of Christ with the hearing of the ear, nor the seeing of Christ with the sight of the outward eye. Neither the hearing of his doctrine, nor the sight of his miracles will work divine faith in a soul without the concurring operation of the Holy Spirit. The one may make us marvel, but the other makes us believe. All that heard it wondered at these things. Lastly note, the effect which these things had upon Mary, quite different from what they had upon the common people. They wondered, she pondered. The things that affect their heads influenced her heart. She kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was also named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Burkett notes, two things are here observable. One, our Savior's circumcision, and the name given to him at his circumcision. There was no impurity in the Son of God, and yet he is circumcised and baptized also, though he had neither filth nor foreskin, which wanted either the circumcising knife or the baptismal water. Yet he condescends to be both circumcised and baptized, thereby showing that as he was made of a woman, so he would be made under the law, which he punctually observed to a tittle. And accordingly, he was not only circumcised, but circumcised the eighth day, as the ceremonial law required. And thus our Lord fulfilled all righteousness. Matthew 3.15. Observe, too, the name given at our Savior's circumcision. His name was called Jesus, that is, a Savior, he being to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. The great end of Christ's coming into the world was to save persons from the punishment and power of their sins. Had he not saved us from our sins, we must have died in our sins, and died for our sins, and that eternally. Never let us then sit down desponding, either under the guilt or under the power of our sins, and conclude that they are either so great that they cannot be forgiven, or so strong that they can never be overcome.
verses 22 through 24. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, was accomplished, they brought her to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Burkett notes, A twofold act of obedience doth the Holy Virgin here perform in two ceremonial laws, the one concerning the purification of women after childbirth, the other concerning the presenting the male child before the Lord. The law concerning the purification of women we have recorded, Leviticus 12, where the time mentioned for the woman's purification is set down, namely, after a male child, 40 days, after a female, fourscore days, after which time she was to bring a lamb of a year old for a burnt offering, in case she was a person of ability, or a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, in the case of extreme poverty. Now as to the virgin's purification, observe, one, that no sooner was she able and allowed to walk, but she travels to the temple, where note that she visited God's house at Jerusalem before her own house at Nazareth. Learn thence that such women whom God has blessed with safety of deliverance, if they make not their first visit to the temple of God to offer up their praises and thanksgiving there, they are strangers to the virgin's piety and devotion. Observe, too, another act of Mary's obedience to the ceremonial law. She presented her child at Jerusalem to the Lord. But how durst the blessed virgin carry her holy baby to Jerusalem into Herod's mouth? It was but a little before that Herod had sought the young child's life to destroy it. Yet the virgin sticks not, in obedience to the commands of God, to carry him to Jerusalem. Learn thence that no apprehension of dangers, either imminent or approaching, either at hand or afar off, ought to hinder us from performing our duty to Almighty God. We ought not to neglect a certain duty to escape an uncertain danger. Observe farther. As the obedience, so the humility of the Holy Virgin, in submitting to the law for purifying of uncleanness. For thus she might have pleaded, What need have I of purging, who did not conceive in sin? Other births are from men, but mine is from the Holy Ghost, who is purity itself. Other women's children are under the law, but mine is above the law. But like the mother of him whom it behooved to fulfill all righteousness, she dutifully fulfills the law of God, without quarreling or disputing. Observe lastly, as the exemplary humility, so the great poverty of the Holy Virgin. She has not a lamb, comes with her two doves to God. Her offering declares her penury. The best are sometimes the poorest, seldom the wealthiest. Yet none are so poor, but God expects an offering from them. He looks for somewhat from everyone, not from everyone alike. The providence of God it is that makes differences in person's ability but his pleasure will make no difference in its acceptation. Where there is a willing mind, it shall be accepted according to what the person hath. 2 Corinthians 8.12